So let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Esther. We're going to start at 4, verse 15. We're going to go to the end of chapter 6. This is kind of the center of the book of Esther. And then our text is 6, verse 1, which I would argue is the very center of the book of Esther. So beginning at uh, verse 15, so Mordecai has just been pleading. If you remember the story of Esther, Haman has, uh, has, has um, pushed the king to uh, attack the Jews. And uh, there's a decree out that all the Jews will be killed on such and such a day. And so Mordecai comes to Esther, who is uh, at this point the king's wife. And this is Esther's final response to Mordecai. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast with as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared, and they were drinking wine after the feast. The king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled." Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? 
The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry! Take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So far, the reading of God's word. And our focus, of course, will be on 6 verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. Beloved in the Lord, there's more going on than just what is on the surface in Esther 6, verse 1. The king can't sleep. However, if you set this against what happens earlier in Scripture, a pattern starts to emerge. Joseph is faithful, refusing to sleep with his master's wife. He's thrown in jail. He continues to be faithful. And it's through the dreams that God sends to the Pharaoh that he's brought out of jail. Daniel and his friends refuse the king's food because it is unclean. King Nebuchadnezzar, like the Pharaoh, is given dreams. And God gives Daniel the wisdom to escape a death warrant and be raised to the right hand of the king. And God is giving us a similar pattern with differences in the book of Esther. The book of Esther is, is unique in the books of the Bible in that it never mentions the name of God. You won't see any references to God in the book of Esther, at least explicitly. And this has created all kinds of questions about the book of Esther. Why is it in the Bible? Are Mordecai and Esther godly people? However, the silence of the book of Esther points to a God who is working behind the scenes. In many ways, it is a book of providence. Right? We don't see, God doesn't tell us explicitly what he's doing day by day. But looking back, we can see his plan. God is working in, in Esther and Mordecai. He's working with both the good and the bad 
in order to protect not just Mordecai and Esther, but his whole people. I bring you the word of the Lord under the theme, when the church is faithful, the king won't be able to sleep. And I speak metaphorically there. We aren't ruled by kings, and a faithful church isn't guaranteed to give the civil magistrate insomnia. But throughout the whole Bible, Old and New Testaments, a faithful church makes her enemies tremble. So first we're going to see Esther's identity. Second, we're going to see Haman's anger. And third, we're going to see the king's sleepless night. In Joseph, his righteousness is, is a question of a crime against his master who has made him a steward over all his goods. In Daniel and his friends, their righteousness is a question of their cleanness before God. Now, of course, these are connected to identity as well. But in Esther, in Esther it really gets to this question of identity. Is she going to admit her identity or not? Will she stand with her people or not? Her uncle, Mordecai, has encouraged her to hide her Jewish identity, likely believing that she would be more likely to be picked as the king's bride if she were to hide her identity. This also may have been connected to Mordecai's desire to climb up the social ladder. Esther, whom he raised as his own daughter, is in the, in the perfect place to provide advancement for Mordecai. If her lineage is known, eyebrows might be raised at Mordecai's status in the empire. And the hidden identity may also be due to anti-Jewish sentiment. Certainly, Haman does not like the Jews. Whatever was involved in her ascension as queen, and reading Esther, it seems very likely that this was political maneuvering. Right? Mordecai is trying to get into the court of the king, not necessarily out of a desire to be faithful. Whatever is involved, Esther is put in the perfect place in order to defend the Jewish people. Immediately before our reading began, Mordecai asked this question, And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time of this as this? Mordecai may have managed her so that he could have control in the kingdom. But he asked the question, maybe really God intended it for this, so that you may stand for the Jewish people. The question is, is she willing to act according to that identity, to put her own life on the line for the sake of her people? Mordecai and Esther, by Mordecai's command, haven't been doing this. They haven't been living according to their identity. Will Esther do it now? And in Esther's case, acting according to her identity means a willingness to reveal her identity, to openly confess the people that she belongs to, and by extension, the God she belongs to. However, the ideal nature of her place is not readily apparent. It's more in looking back that we see how ideal it is. Esther has to take the initiative and approach her husband, the king. 
In general, married couples lived lives that were relatively separate in the past. There were very different cultural expectations than we have today. This was even truer of the king and the queen. It appears in Persia that it was against the law to come into the king and talk to him, though the king is free to spare the one who approaches him. This may have even been due to Ahasuerus' ordeal with his former wife, Vashti. But Esther promises Mordecai, I will talk to the king. But first, Esther begins with prayer and fasting. Even though the book of Esther does not mention the name of God, we do see here an act of piety. She is looking to God in her time of trouble. The little we know about Esther and Mordecai suggests that they may have not been particularly godly people. However, Esther knows that she needs God's favor if she is to approach the king in order to save her people. Therefore, she prepares with prayer and fasting so that she may act. We need to be careful about this. Her fasting is not to earn favor with God, but rather to strengthen herself as she sets out on this path. It's also interesting that she doesn't pray and fast in order to make a decision. Rather, she knows the decision that needs to be made, and she prepares, she she prays and fasts in order to strengthen her to act on that decision. It also allows her to take a moment to examine herself where she may have forgotten her God in her journey. She also encourages all the Jews in Susa, the capital city, to take this course of action. Mordecai, too, needs to engage in prayer and fasting perhaps even recognize some of his own sin in the situation that he is in. Again, this is not done to earn favor of God, but to strengthen the Jews in their relationship to God so that God will favor them. Remember, it's God working behind the scenes. Mordecai and Esther and the Jews don't deserve to be saved, but but they put their refuge in God in their moment of crisis. Now, in contrast to most commentators, I would argue that the king in the book of Esther is not the Xerxes who attacked the Greeks. Most people will say that. But Darius, an ancestor of Xerxes. And this would mean that Esther is a contemporary of Haggai, Zechariah, and Nehemiah. If we read Haggai, there's an apathy among the Jews that needs to be called out. They have failed to rebuild the temple while building their own houses. If we read Zechariah, God sees a false peace among the Jews. They are not properly shining their light in the land. And so he promises that he will shake the earth again. To call back the Jews to their work of witness. To their work of being a light. The call of Esther to Prayer and fasting is a call to remember God. Interestingly, Esther's own situation reflects that of her people. Esther herself is now committed to identifying with her people. She comes into the king's court, and the Lord, who, according to the Proverbs, directs the heart of a king as a man would direct a watercourse, 
the Lord works in the heart of the king so that he receives Esther. She asked that the king and Haman would come together for a banquet. For whatever reason, Esther does not reveal everything at the banquet that she invites the king to. But she has committed herself to this course. She tells the king that she would like another banquet the next day, and she will give her petition to the king tomorrow. Perhaps she's even prompted by by the spirit in this course of action, because God is still preparing the ground so that Esther's plea will be heard. The God who works in Esther's time is working in our own time. He doesn't speak directly to us, but he speaks through word and spirit. He works in us all that, all that we need in order to respond to the challenges of our own time. Esther allows us to ponder how this providence works. Yet we can fall into apathy. We can have an overly peaceful attitude toward the world to the point We're in certain situations, we're willing to hide our identity as Christians. And particularly in our context, I think of our identity as theologically and socially conservative Christians who really believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, since many progressive Christians are fairly acceptable in our own day. Christ has bought us. He redeemed us. In everything, we're called to bear Christ and him crucified before the world. Let's ask in hearing this story and noticing this pattern, how are we hiding our identity? Do we need to recommit ourselves to God? These are things that we should regularly ponder as as we do live in a time where the church is more and more marginalized. Yet the amazing thing that Esther shows is that God can even use our failures to identify with his righteousness, to identify with as Christians in order to accomplish his plans. He used that failure to get Esther in the right spot so that she could speak the right thing at the right time. And when we're faithful to our God, our calling, our identity, kings won't be able to sleep. Again, I speak metaphorically. A faithful church disturbs the world. It disturbs the peace of the world. This is not through insurrection, but through heartfelt prayer, which results in faithful presence. When that happens, however, not everybody's happy. And here enters Haman. Brings us to our second point, Haman's anger. Haman is is ecstatic that he has been invited to the private dinner of Esther and the king. What an honor. Not only has the king made Haman his right-hand man, but now the queen has invited Haman into the family life of the king. He clearly doesn't guess at the identity of Esther. But as soon as he comes to the gate, he sees a man whose identity he knows well. The Jew, Mordecai. Mordecai has been humbled before the Lord through prayer and fasting. But he does not rise at the coming of Haman with fear and trembling. Haman has plotted against the whole Jewish nation because Mordecai did not show proper honor to Haman when the king made Haman second in command. 
Mordecai was wrong to do so. The suggestion in the text is that there's a certain envy and anger between Mordecai and Haman. They're both vying for favor in, in, in Ahasuerus' court. It may be that Mordecai has hurt pride that his efforts to curry favor have not resulted in his being second in command. Now, however, Mordecai is right to stay seated. He does not need to abase himself before a man who has sought revenge not only against Mordecai, but against the whole people of Mordecai. Haman hopes that he has put the fear of himself into Mordecai, and he discovers that he has not. He goes home in a rage to plan further humiliation for the Jews. He will put Mordecai on a gallows that will go into the heavens. Fifty cubits is seventy-five feet. He's going to kill Mordecai before he kills the rest of the Jews. His wife suggests, why don't you ask to kill him tomorrow and put him on those gallows? Fifty cubits is seventy-five feet. Mordecai will die in an, in, a, in an accursed place hanging between heaven and earth, and his shame will be there for all to see. Haman immediately goes out and has those gallows made. Everybody with an interest in Haman's actions knows what's going on. Haman is planning a special revenge for Mordecai. This is how it often goes when a church begins to reform itself and it seeks to be faithful to God. The powers of this world seek for ways to humiliate it further. Of course, Haman already intends to completely destroy the people of God, but we can see the pattern here. God begins to shake the earth, possibly through some attack of the church's enemies, possibly through other events. The church seeks God in prayer and supplication and prepares to renew her righteous witness. And as the church begins to obey God in response to the crisis, the enemies of the church begin to attack her. This could cause the church to be discouraged. We have been faithful and the result is mounting pressure. We have made steps in the right direction and the result is greater humiliation. We made the right choices and the wicked seek to tighten their hold on us to ramp up the oppression. But it shouldn't necessarily discourage us, discourage us because as I've noted... A faithful church will trouble the world. It will give the king a bad night's rest, but it will also trouble those who are troublers of the church. Haman was attacking the church, and his anger at the church is a sign of how a faithful church gets under the skin of those who hate her. The Psalms and Proverbs note that righteous men incite envy in the wicked. Paul even says that the church is the stench of death to those who are perishing. The act of Haman may well have caused Esther and Mordecai to be discouraged. Esther and Mordecai have taken the first steps toward faithfulness. Esther has told the king at the next banquet, I will tell you my request. She's headed in the right direction. And the result is a gallows. A gallows that now overshadows the city. A gallows where the next day Haman will hang Mordecai. But at the same time, God is at work. He does something that Esther 
and Mordecai and Haman would never expect. He doesn't give the king a dream as he did with Joseph and Daniel. No, he gives the king a bad night's rest. Even as Haman is having the gallows made in order to humiliate his enemy, God is turning the heart of the king. And that brings us to our third point, the king's sleepless night. Chapter 6 of Esther opens with, On that night the king could not sleep. On that night that Haman built the gallows, the king could not sleep. This is the deus ex machina, God out of the machine of the story of Esther. The protagonists, Esther and Mordecai, they're not convincing the king. It's nothing they do that begins to move the king toward favoring the Jews. Rather, it is insomnia that causes the events that will eventually rescue the people of Israel. And who is the cause of that insomnia? Who guides all things so that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. This is an act of God. The church doesn't move forward through her own strength. She doesn't defend herself by her own hand. Any action must begin in prayer. It must begin by subjecting ourselves in reliance to God Almighty. We act through faith in Him. And even then it is not we who clear the obstacles that stand in our way. It's not we who have the wisdom to stand against oppressors. God works. God works. He gives the king a sleepless night. Now, I don't want to give the false hope here that somehow the church is faithful. The Hamans of this world ramp up the attack, and then kingly insomnia quickly follows. Sometimes that second section, the ramping up of the attacks of the Hamans, can be extensive. The martyrs of history attest to that. Sometimes it can even appear the church is, is crushed. I think of in, in, in Spain, where a number of young men decided it was time to preach the gospel. This was while the Muslims still controlled Spain. A number of young men decided that they needed to confess Christ and preach the gospel. They were all killed. It seemed it was suppressed. But a hundred years later, the re, what is called the Reconquista began. The beginning of making a Christian Spain. We can trust that God does work to keep his elect. He gives us our faith and strengthens us in that through hard times. Let's return to our king who can't sleep. What do you do when you can't sleep? Maybe you count sheep. Maybe you get up and read. Sometimes I'll listen to a podcast. The king here has his own way of getting back to sleep. He gets somebody to read the chronicles to him. But something catches his attention in those chronicles. 
Apparently, two eunuchs have plotted against the king and Mordecai. Sorry. Apparently, two eunuchs had plotted against the king, and Mordecai had saved the king by reporting that these two men were overthrowing the kingdom. The king wonders what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this, and immediately calls Haman to get ideas. He's excited about honoring Mordecai, so he keeps the person he means to honor a secret. So Haman tells the king to give the person all the pageantry possible, believing that he is the one to be honored. Again, we see God at work. Haman wanted to lift up Mordecai in a humiliating fashion. Now Haman becomes the instrument for lifting up Mordecai in honor. Can you imagine how Mordecai and Esther would feel about this? Yesterday they were mourning, and now Mordecai is being honored. What a reversal. Of course, the command to kill the Jews is still out there, but you can imagine how encouraged Esther feels at seeing her uncle's exaltation. If she was worried at the last banquet, she's now fully encouraged in seeing that God is for her. So yes... After the king has exalted Mordecai, the Jews still stand in danger of full destruction. Yet God has pushed the domino that will allow Esther to effectively plead with the king for Haman to end up hanged on the same gallows he had planned for Mordecai and for the Jews to find triumph over their their enemies. All of this points to our gracious and compassionate Father. You are his redeemed children. That means if you come to him with a sincere heart and humility, he will hear. He's preserving us for the sake of his son, just as he was preserving the Jewish people for the sake of his son. After all this was the line with which he had promised to produce his son. Right? These were the people, the seed people, that would bring Jesus Christ into the world. Now we have the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And that should give us all the more certainty as we navigate the social world of our own day. Look at the book of Acts. How often fear falls upon the general populace because of what God is doing with the church. That also causes persecution. And that we know that's not because the church was anything special, but because of God's Son and the Spirit that God had given to the church. Place your confidence in Him and remember that you are hidden in Him at the right hand of God. Nothing can separate you from His love. All glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's sing in response Psalm 118, Psalm 118, verses 1, 3, and 5.